0: From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. Hello, my name is Mickey Hellerback, and I am a writer at Central Sauce, as well as freelancer for publications like OK Player, Guat Magazine, Complex, and more. I am here with the homies, Ryan Gore and Tyler Jones. Guys, how we doing? Ryan, what's up?
1: I am very well, thank you. How are you, Mickey?
0: Hanging in there, my guy, Tyler. How we doing?
2: I'm good, my G. Um, we chillin' today on this lovely day. Word, word.
0: Um, I'm excited to uh, bring three really, really cool and diverse, interesting pieces today to the podcast. Um, we are going to start with one um, from Ryan called Epic Games Bandcamp and the Fandom for the Me Generation by Mark Mulligan from Midia. In the middle, we're going to head to uh, Stevie Wonder and His Dream Machines by Jason Green for Pitchfork. And then to close it out today, we're going to hit up Earth Gang's Ghetto Gods Look for Divinity in Atlanta's Dichotomies by a podcast favorite, Christina Lee for NPR, Great Closer. Um, but before we get into all three of the pieces, let's do a little round of what we've been listening to. Tyler, you want to kick us off?
2: Uh, sure. Um, first off, what I've been listening to is I've still been listening to Saba's Few Good Things album. It's still currently my album of the year. Um, gotta thank my boy Mickey for putting me on the Central Sea Project. If I listen to it, shit's fire. Um, the Moonchild Project is also really good. <clears throat> And then I've i once again circled back and gotten into, like, my retro kick again and listening to a lot of 70s and 80s stuff. Like, I've been listening. I've been playing Off the Wall by Michael Jackson a lot. Um, multiple hits by Anita Baker. Multiple hits by Luther and Teddy Pendergrass. Um, I blame that Quiet Storm article we did, like, a few weeks back, honestly. <laughs> um but yeah, that's what really what's been like in circulating my headphones and even what I've been playing for the kids at my preschool. Already.
0: Ryan, what about you?
1: Uh, Well, thanks to you, Mickey. like You should be in the direction of that uh, Tracy Chapman self-titled album, mm-hmm. which is yeah, a gorgeous project. So I've been playing Baby Can I Hold You just a hell of a lot. Um, <clears throat> outside of that, it's been a lot of soundtracks. Um, I've, I've listened to soundtracks to a game called Donut County, which is like just <laughs> great like um, while you're studying kind of music. And, um, also, uh, for the movie, The French Dispatch, I really like the score for that movie as well. And yeah, a few tracks on there, just like quite nice little things I put in the background when I'm working or I'm just going for a walk or whatever. So yeah, that's been me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Go ahead.
2: Oh, like I say real quick, also been listening to the Batman score because that- Teasing me now, man. It's laps, bro. Michael Giacchino, you are a- composer guy real quick that been slapping in the car but yeah i'm sorry mickey go ahead bro
0: yo i this is making me want to look up this thing i have saved on my phone i i feel like i never until right now would even have a film score that i've been listening to to talk about on the podcast but funny enough um a a score i just saw the lost daughter have either of you seen that on netflix maggie joan hall um yeah, Maggie Gyllenhaal directed and wrote, I believe. Yeah, Olivia uh, Coleman, Jesse
1: Buckley. Yeah,
0: yeah, that exactly. So that film has this sound has like of the most like impactful. Just as soon as I heard it within the film soundtracks that I've heard as of late, there's like this repeated kind of like string led sequence of Olivia Coleman while she's driving along the coast that like really hit me immediately. And I did this like deep dive on the guy. He's done a couple other films to Dickon Hin- Hinchliffe. Uh, but he's, yeah, I don't know. Is <laughs> this uh, dude who does film scores and that, that score like really jumped out to me. And I, I saw an interview of him talking about it actually. And he was talking about how Maggie Hall asked him to, to specifically make a score that felt like it was its own character in the film rather than something that's supporting or in the background of the story. And I thought that was really cool. And I feel like the the score really like interacts with the character, specifically Olivia Coleman in specific moments. Um, so yeah, I plan to talk about other music, but I feel like since we are on the <laughs> film score, why not just talk about that? Um, yeah. So check out the lost daughter if you haven't watched it and definitely listen to the score. I think it's really dope. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's get right into Ryan's uh, piece, which kind of um, talks about definitely with a kind of a, a, a company crossover or buyout, um, the interaction of music with a different medium. Uh, so yeah, Ryan, why don't you introduce your piece and let's get right into it.
1: Yeah, for sure. So this is Epic Games, Bandcamp and Fandom for the Me Generation by Mark Mulligan for Medea. So, yeah, this isn't really the kind of piece I'd usually bring. I like to bring, like, pieces centred around the art, specifically about really an artist, about, like, something you could be really flowery and poetic with. So this is quite a change for me because it's quite a um, business-minded piece. But it was pretty difficult for me to get this merger out of my head, like, just trying to rack my brain, trying to figure out what the hell Epic Games have bought Bandcamp for (laughs) and what that could mean, like, just for the future of Bandcamp, which is a platform I think we've all used <clears throat> and that we all really appreciate the existence of as people who want to see artists paid a fair amount. And for um um the yeah, just the future of music in general and where, where what this merger can mean for like how tech is gonna get involved in music even further. So um what I really love about the article is how it has kinda of the length of a piece that's just trying to tell you that Epic Games has bought Bandcamp and has, like, a brief history of what Epic Games is and a brief history of what Bandcamp is and saying, hey, they're together now. Bye. But <laughs> – and that's kind of, like, a testament to, like, the efficiency of this piece because, like, it's still super short, but it makes, like, some incredible points that just kind of changed my perspective on, like, media corporations and kind of their, their goals in this modern age and offering some kind of, like speculation on what the acquisition could produce – because I think our most like um, valuable asset as journalists is that we're kind of historians, that we go around kind of documenting events, documenting albums, and that kind of allows us to predict the future a little bit. And I think that's what I needed from this piece, especially because it hit so hard because when I heard about that merger, I was just so confused. And this not only cleared up Um, why it's happening, but the potential for the future. And yeah, it was just exactly what I needed to read at the time and was so efficient and so thought-provoking at the same time. So um, so yeah, I needed an explainer and he really came through. Uh, Mark really came through. Um, So yeah, Um, I want to talk about this one quote, which is one of those points that I made I thought was really interesting, near the top of the piece. And it has to do with the title when he's talking about fandom for the me generation. And when he's he's talking about kind of the similarities between Epic Games and Bandcamp, he says, um, all of them enable their respective user bases to communicate their identities and tribes via fan products from badges to Fortnite skins through to T-shirts and vinyl. And I thought that uh, line he drew between, like, Fortnite and Bandcamp was really, really perceptive and, like, really, um, yeah, really thought-provoking and made me kind of look at, like I said, uh, media companies in general, and what their what their goals are, and what like how they see us as consumers, and what they are pushing for us to do, and just kind of made me more, I guess, more aware of uh, how I'm being manipulated as a consumer. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Tyler, uh, I'll go to you next because I know you're someone who's like very much into games, like I am. So how did this news hit you, and how did this article kind of help contextualize it? That was not a diss to Mickey who I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> It is a fact, though. It is a fact.
2: I mean, fair enough. It's, for me, when I heard the news, I was like, there was parts of me that was like, okay, this is really cool. I get, maybe artists get to even monetize their art through it being another, through, through another medium. Because we all, we hear all the time, right? These current companies, they're like, they don't describe themselves as a record label or like a blog. They say we're a multimedia company. And I think Epic Games is also in that area. Um and I do like how this article breaks down. Not even breaks down, but like even says like what could happen. What could they be using it for? Exclusive almost like how exclusive music skins um and things of that nature. Cause it makes me think about it this this more so this article made me think a lot of things. So we it as gamers we see that more so than any community, I think, gamers really invest in, like, their hobby. Music fans, we can say we stream music, we buy concert tickets, we'll sometimes get merch, right? If if we even do that. But the the baseline music person will at least listen to the album or buy the album. Gamers, they will buy a console. They will then buy the individual, al- um, excuse me, individual, like, uh, game. Then, if there's DLC that's to either further their experience with the game, they'll usually get that at the And then you, and then from there, you might have an online account through whatever it is, whether it's PlayStation um, or Xbox Live, whatever it may be. And then you have the headsets. There are multiple layers where you are buying for consumers, which that's something that they were trying to get to this in the article. The consumer is the most important part, and how they want to make uh, and how they're saying it's going to be consumer driven, right? And how they're trying to do that also with music. The other side of me, though, is like this could get really weird and really bad, really fast, because um, no one here in this podcast trusts big corporate, trusts big corporations, right? No, no one trusts big corporations here. And what made me think about it even more was I was actually I actually looked uh, at a TikTok by. A friend and a, pers- a person we had on the <clears throat> first annual uh, Sauce Fest, Imp Imp uh, gave a little bit more insight, and they said, "Oh, not only it's. While this could be really cool on paper, if you look at the larger picture, Epic Games is owned by Tencent, and Tencent mm-hmm. owns ten- Tencent. Ten- <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Tencent owns ten percent of Spotify, right?" so once again we're now having smaller companies going into bigger companies to even going to even bigger company where they have their hands in everything so maybe they use bandcamp as like oh now we're now having a streaming service that's like that helps you support artists more when is in in fact it's once again taking more from artists we don't really know what any of this means it's it's the biggest analogy i could probably use is like when jay-z got with the nfl It's a big announcement everyone's excited but no one actually knows what it means yet. We don't know those fine details. What are the plans? Where are they actually going to do with said music and these artists? Because if it's if it's if it's all sunshine and rainbows, then yes, we see artists getting monetized um, and having their art being monetized more in in the platform that they want it to be, and they can see it in more diverse areas. Or we end up seeing the artists, for lack of a better term, get fucked and act and unfortunately, like have their art even be more watered down and stigmatized and. And where little 12 year old kids aren't even listening to the whole entire song or their album anymore that they wanted to in the first place, but it's now a clip that they can like, now you for a little dance, right? Which it's a funny joke, but also what is that where we're heading? Is that where the multimedia, the modern multimedia company is heading? I know that was a lot. So, but also Mickey, go ahead, brother.
0: Yeah. I think that that's really interesting what you're saying, Tyler. I think, uh, kind of w- what the, the, the piece offered was um, a real breakdown of what the positive outcome of this could be from something that the immediate reaction to was so skeptical because of these very justified reasonings for us to not trust big corporations. Um, And I think that that's like, it really gave the piece purpose because it was like, as consumers, this is what the type of things that we should be expecting from this merger that are actually um, could actually result in positive outcomes. So we know what to ask for with this breakdown of um, the merging of these two companies. Uh, I I thought the piece was really effective, obviously, as Ryan subtly threw shade at me about. I don't I am not a uh, not a video game person whatsoever so whenever i literally hear or read our our group chat and they start talking about video games i just tune out for the next day and a half um but what this piece really did i thought was did a good job of bringing me into the point where i was like oh i actually am intrigued by reading this to ask people who know more than me more questions to get an understanding of the interaction between Bandcamp and the kind of Fortnite platform and how that would actually work out. Um and so I even wanted to I did a little bit of digging myself after reading this, but I wanted to kind of ask you guys about specifically that kind of crossover um that was mentioned in the piece by Mulligan about the the kind of Music creation, I guess, that kind of happens in Fortnite that can be this kind of collaboration with Bandcamp and then presented into Fortnite Radio. Is that a thing that that either of you? Because I, I'm assuming both of you play Fortnite at least to a point where you understand <laughs> how it kind of works. Maybe not. I don't know. But <laughs> I thought that was a really interesting thing that I never would have realized was a thing. And I mean, you know, I really love Bandcamp and what it offers um mm-hmm. is this kind of like fan emp- fan empowerment but also artist empowerment um in the kind of creation and distribution channels that it offers so and i saw that that was like the last thing he mentioned on his list of things but i was i was wondering if you guys could give me more insight on that because i don't know
2: anything about fortnite yeah right yeah uh, ryan you want to go first on this one
1: yeah yeah i'm gonna need you to back me up but yeah i know that um fortnite has like a strong relationship with music to be fair Like, Mm -hmm. since the game was released, um, (laughs) um, there's been like virtual concerts held in Fortnite. Like, I know Travis Scott did a concert in Fortnite, and that's kind of like a difficult thing to imagine, but it's all kind of like different people's avatars showing up for this concert in this place, which is weird for uh, even for me now. Like, even it's a very strange concept but um and then like as i said like Fortnite radio they very much have boosted artists in quite a lot of ways um and i think like recently they had some kind of uh collaboration with bruno mars and anderson pack
2: for so Sonic, i yep. think
1: yeah yeah exactly so um yeah the, the, they've had a view to incorporate music into the game for a very long time obviously Epic Games is a lot bigger than than, uh, Fortnite but they pump most of their energy into Fortnite so you can probably take Fortnite as kind of example of what they want to do generally across the board Um, but yeah when it comes to creation you might know a little bit more than me because I'm not quite 100% on that I just know that um, Fortnite Radio is a place where artists can promote their music essentially like a a Spotify playlist kind of thing
2: so my nephews play Fortnite even I think my niece has played as well. Um, They're all actually not, they're about 10 years younger than me, but at the same time though, they're at that age, which was, I'm for context, I'm 26. That means my niece and nephews are 17, 16. They're at that age now where like, even I was getting to more music consumption and music music curation, whether it's playlists, whatever. And they can do those things on Fortnite. If we're specifically like using that as, since it's the biggest game on Epic Games and probably the most, and the one that we're all, jokingly at sometimes most familiar with um art and they and the thing is more similar to my creation is like how they uh when you're creating your characters and you're getting your mods you can have them do a specific dance you can have them have a certain look and it can be to a certain song right um as well and and that also includes a play um i think also playlist as well they might i might get a call off of this from my, my niece and nephews and be like you're totally wrong but like that's from what that's what i've seen um but with but with that being said, if they now own Bandcamp, right? Um, one would assume because once because, uh, Mickey, as you did state, it almost very much so listed the positives. You're like it's almost very much so easy to go into my mindset and just go into be like, what are the negatives? Um, and almost go into the skeptical realm. But this article does be like, here's what you can have here or here are what the positives can be, and, and like you said, here's what we can demand from it. Um. The like it would be dope. Like if like Mickey, if you dropped another album, mixtape, whatever on Bandcamp, and by the time they have this incorporated, they, they someone could download your song, put use it on their character, and you could be literally be walking by, and someone and like whatever kid random uh, randomly playing the game, and you hear your song through a video game, that'd be dope. It would. Uh, it's essentially giving, the, and it's also essentially giving them an a library as well. Because once again, because they have, because they are owned through uh, Tencent and Tencent has 10% of Spotify, that's how they can use them. That's why they use and can use so many Spotify songs. And you have and now you have nowadays where most artists, if uh, well not speaking about most, smaller artists, if they only want to, like go to Spotify, but they want to make sure they can get directly their stuff to fans, they might just put it exclusively on Bandcamp. So once again, this is giving them a, a bigger access to library, bigger um, playlisting as well. They can um, use for let's say indie artists and, once again, I, and po- once again possible monetization and customization for their characters and making it very com- com- consumer friendly but it, it it's also putting it into an area of like once again puts me back in the mindset of like how will this actually look um because this is just like i said it's a it's a gut punch quick reaction to what are what could happen it'll be interesting to see like well we're a year from now from this, two years from now from this, three years from now from this, and what has actually happened, what is actually being used from it, or was this just a power grab to once again make your company a multimedia company? Because um, we see how, like even how League of Legends uses, all go, goes back to Arcane, all goes back to Arcane, how they how they use music, right? It's it can be seen on multiple fronts.
0: Well, I liked the the kind of thing that all of that led into. Th- that gave me a lot of clarity, Tyler, so thanks. But that kind of led to at the end, which I thought was the most kind of poignant and really made me think part of the piece. I don't know if you had clocked this too, Ryan, but was the, the sort of <laughs> through, there's you said something about there being a lot of, a very small amount of huge superstar artists and then this like crew of not so superstar artists now. Correct. Where it used to be, there used to be more of like, I guess what could be considered like the middle class, and so the empowerment of the indie artists that like live on Bandcamp through a huge platform like Fortnite could start to slowly el- eliminate this idea of like you know over interest in celebrity and make it more of like using the internet as a community which like i get he kind of compared to how tiktok is kind of making that happen where you're getting more like niche artists within certain pockets that are forming these communities in there where people get actually more invested because they feel like they know them and came up with them in a more intimate level through the internet that that could kind of you know and the the celebrity worship i think is a thing that we can all agree is just generally not a great thing Nope. so the idea that that um that the platforms merging could actually in a way through just independent artistry and music kind of eliminate that in the sphere of music is kind of a cool idea i thought and a cool way to close it
1: yeah yeah and like is my final point on this. <coughs> kind of leads like into the idea says about um <clears throat> Sorry, about uh, the consumer as the creator, right? Turn the consumer into the creator, and making it about them rather than about wearing the fandom on, wearing their fandom of another person on their sleeve, right? Right now, that's what they're kind of trying to monetize. Is like, how can I express my fandom for this person in the biggest way? And that's what is likely to be like the the basis of the initial merger. But I like what he goes on to describe about like, he says, just as TikTok and Instagram turn consumers that scared into video creators so could so Epic could make them into music creators at scale. And in the games industry, we've seen a couple moves towards kind of lowering the um, the bar for entry kind of thing, like how music resources are quite available now, game, uh, game development resources are quite available. Like Nintendo published Game Builder Garage last year. There's Dreams. Epic uh, give you access to the Unreal Engine for you to make games. And I think that's an idea they're heading towards now is kind of like monetizing people being a platform where people can create these different kind of media things with music games, whatever, and kind of make money off people trying to do that. So yeah. Um, it has pretty wide implications if these kind of things come to pass, but yeah, we we'll wait and see.
0: Dope. Yeah. I think that's a cool closing thought. Um, and with that, uh, and Tyler suggested this order, particularly we'll move into what is, uh, my piece but first let me just recap the title of that one that ryan and us just went through epic games band camp and fandom for the me generation by mark mulligan for media Now we'll move to kind of taking it back a little bit, but still keeping on the same through line of the intersection of technology and art and music specifically. Um, The piece that I'm bringing to the podcast today is entitled Stevie Wonder and his Dream Machines, and it is penned by Jason Green via Pitchfork. So I have, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, have brought many pieces, even in the most recent podcast I just did, that highlight producers Um, And I try to highlight them in my own work as well. So I tend to be really intrigued by the intricacies of which others cover them. This, however, is the first time I'm actually bringing a piece centered on a vocalist who had a keen influence through his own production that was not only inventive, but influential. And this is a thing that not a lot of people necessarily know about Stevie Wonder. So it felt like a real uncovering thing to me. Um, Jason Green from Pitchfork uses this piece to discuss all of the gear that Stevie used to elevate his own music and music itself. The piece was a part of a huge Sunday drop of multiple reviews of albums that had not been reviewed by Pitchfork previously, as well as this one long form piece. Green not only talks about Stevie but highlights the producers and gearheads that brought Stevie equipment that would impact his musical mind. The piece, while displaying a lot of technical elements in describing how they work, never verges on being too nerdy, which I think is a huge plus for it. This is something I think that would be easy to fall into the trap of with this piece as well. Green uses a more historical, storytelling, and artful lens to describe the craftsmanship that led to some of Stevie Wonder's most impactful compositions. I think the piece gets summed up pretty well in this one section where Green writes about Stevie specifically using synthesizers, synthesizers in his process. He writes, synthesizers were not orchestration tools for wonder. They were idea triggers. When other musicians from his era raised the alarm about the Lindrum, which debuted in the early 80s to widespread fears among session drummers of a robot revolution, Stevie Wonder sat down and wrote an entire song inspired by it. So Green contextualizes Stevie's fearlessness and how he treats new technology as a new form of communication in the studio. Rather than going into the minutia of how Stevie step-by-step step, step used a synth, Green talks about how they moved him. So yeah, just off of that kind of idea, let's, let's open it up. Uh, did you guys know, because I didn't at all, did y'all know about Stevie's obsession with gear at all before reading this piece? And what did you learn from the piece? What stood out to you? Why don't we start with Ryan?
1: uh yeah so i didn't know exactly that he was obsessed with like this kind of technology but i do know kind of tracing back from frank ocean's close to you uh retracing this sample that he took uh from that stevie wonder clip where he's kind of messing with that um voice manipulator machine Mm -hmm. and um from there i just kind of got this idea of stevie but yeah he was someone who loved to experiment with machinery and like um yeah so this Piece really uh, i found this fascinating man like i i, I love this it was like okay i just going to give you this quote so he says so green says he was among the first to grasp the possibilities of these new machines which were just popping popping up in recording studios by the early 1970s and one of their best and most eloquent interpreters for me this piece was all about word choice and mm-hmm. calling stevie um an interpreter of the synthesizer an interpreter of the technology as right. if like it was a language only he spoke that no one else at the time really got. I thought it was beautiful. It's like this idea that Stevie just would went searching for the music and anything. Right. And the way that I think it's um, one of the interviews, is it Bahari? Uh, was that the name? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, he talked about how Stevie was just inspired by sounds right. and how he could like, bend them into music and how he could like make melodies from just like strange sounds you would hear that these machines would produce and i thought it was just such an incredible picture he, he painted just really like that specific word choice the eloquent interpreters are just a brilliant brilliant word way to describe that and it just gave me this a, a stronger picture of stevie like i said someone who just loved to experiment with this technology somebody who was just like so free so like not Burdened by the shackles of like skepticism that a lot of people would have been at the time, he was like, "Oh, that's a sound I've never heard before. Let me just try and, you know, grab it and make it into something. Let's see what I can do with that." And it's such a uh, a, a theme amongst like I think today's music as well. Like the music scene isn't what it is without Stevie just messing around with some synthesizers, really, is it? <laughs> like you no. think about seminal albums. Like I think about whenever I think about synthesizer. I think about Currents by Tame Impala, right? And it's Mm. like, can that album exist without Stevie kind of like manipulating, like it says in the piece, like um, synths were always kind of like warm synths. They were never used in any harsh kind of way. And you listen to an album like Currents and you see like kind of the spectrum that that synth, like, yeah. He 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 puts that synth through. There's a lot of work in that album to get the <laughs> yeah. different emotions out of it, and you just yeah. kind of like draw that line immediately back to Stevie and how like he um, he kind of manipulated it. And I want to throw one more quote out that just like exemplifies what I'm talking about about word choice. Um, quote in the '70s, analog synths were often warm in the tonality, but only in Wanda's hands did they become so fantastically pliable. Ugh. he poured his musicality into them and allowed us to hear them as he did beautiful beasts finicky and strange as tactile as a pair of hands are slapping a kitchen table god yeah, damn it <laughs> god damn it fantastically pliable that's exactly like how I feel about simps. My, Like they're my favourite instrument to hear on the track like usually if you pick an artist my favourite track by them would be one where like, simps are quite heavy on them like my favorite yeah. max miller track is always um complicated because they mm. like, just the heavy thick synths on that track and yeah. you're calling them fantastically pliable oh yeah. just great just like how the image of that gives you of a synthesizer just just brilliant I-, I love this piece
0: oh definitely and then how green kind of fuses that into these really popular stevie songs it kind of gives you the back the technical backstory of how the synths went into them with like superstition and higher ground and then you get this real like ideology that went in through through the equipment through stevie's brain that resulted in those songs but again that real like through the language that green uses that emotional through line through it rather than it being this thing of like he used this synth here to put in between these two other synths blah 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 it like really gets into the feeling behind it which always links it to the feeling that you kind of have with stevie's music and i know tyler you're you're you know Huge, as huge a Stevie Wonder fan as anyone and as me. um Did this really, it felt like it did to me a lot. So, did it feel to you like it really gave you insight into the music that you have like a real affection for?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, this was really, this was a really cool article, by the way. <laughs> this was, this was I, it was an article I never would have expected either. um And, God, I never thought of technology. In this way, to help paint an even more fuller picture of Stevie Wonder um, and and his artistry, like the my, one of my favorite, t- it's like cause something I've, I've thought about. This uh, I have written down here is like it, it gave me so many tidbits about album creation, history, in a lot of ways, Black history in terms, of, in, terms in terms of music, and how like the uh, how the synthesizer really was innovated by this man who's who saw sound more than anything else, more than seeing people he saw sound and he felt sound. And, and through music and through the technology of music, he got an even closer connection to that and emote and the emotion that drew out of people. Um, favorite learning tidbit of this whole entire thing, the fact that they hooked up uh, electrodes to plants, (laughs) (laughs) freaking plants, bro. Like like, here's the thing we always talk about how, and I can connect this to Kanye somehow and I will soon. Um, how how artists innovate and how they do certain things with music and how they create something new. The fact you get electrodes to plants, hook it up, and then and to create and then and then raise it on the synthesizer to create a new sound that plants can make sounds. And then someone coming to the studio one day and setting the plant on the said plant on fire and then seeing how that changes it. Yeah. Like, bro <laughs> like insane. it's it's it really is insane. Um and how they also painted the picture how like very uh, i am not very uh how Stevie and Mahari really found sound how any how music can be made through any sound and at how for how that further created emotion and communicated emotion um it did little tidbit it of my own it did make me think back to this John Mullaney clip of uh, of him and Jake Gyllenhaal with his little bit called the Music Man, and how he was teaching this important lesson to children that music can be made through anything, kids. Like if you ha- hit the table, <laughs> if you tap this, if you do whatever, and it, I was like, I was like, did, did they know about Stevie? Because like he was even dressed like the character. He was just like a mixture of the Beatles and Stevie Wonder. I was like, was this did they do this on purpose? Did they know? Did they read this article in the future or something? Um, yeah. to like really see how. They what the the term they coined was idea triggers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And That's how strong. these mecha- how how you think something mechanical and lifeless can actually bring the most life to the ears that you can ever hear in this era. In matter of fact, still today there are melodies and rhythms I hear on his projects that I'm like that. Even when people try to recreate them, they can't because it's it's it was so pure and it was done out of pure discovery
0: right right that it's so funny that makes me think of another it's not a not a comedic thing but i just saw this like clip of an interview with uh Phineas, uh talking about making music with billy eilish and how he like grabs sounds from the most random things to put in big songs like he used uh which obviously like, i wonder if he is aware of how much that pro- you know that ideology is derived from shit that stevie did in the 70s and 80s but he like took he he or billy ripped a sound from uh and shout out to connor our australian friend but there's this really weird sound at the crossing lights apparently in australia and he he or billy ripped the sound from the crossing lights and then like Put it in the background of bad guy and this thing that sounds like it's a percussion instrument is literally just this like slightly sped up repeated version of this like rhythmic thing that's the at the crossing lights in australia um wow but yeah so stevie's (laughs) kind of like kind of uh you know one of the originators of figuring out how to do that with technology that has now come to the point where you can just kind of record a sound on your phone and loop it through all of the machinery um And so the, the kind of last thing that I want to talk about, which is kind of a closing thought to of then to now is, um, the sort of, um, empowerment specifically that the technology gave Stevie specifically. And because what was kind of described and they said, you know, he was initially with his Barry Gordy contract. He got to be free of that. And he initially was drawn to these like technological innovations that he advanced further. Um, but there, there is, from seeing pe- people who can see, there's a barrier in between themselves and the instrument that they're playing with necessarily. Uh, whereas we, with our sight, can kind of see how things are working and being processed and processing that in real time. Whereas Stevie, it's really like all about feel and hearing. So there's the kind of moment when Stevie first gets in the studio post to Barry Gordy And. You have these like kind of people programming while he's just feeling and listening to the sounds and coming up with these ideas, and they're just like trying to get because he's processing it so quickly without that kind of what actually becomes a barrier of being able to see how the equipment is working. That they're like oh god we got to like rush through and make sure we can get all of these ideas that are happening over and over again so because that barrier is taken away it means that the technological machines that you wouldn't necessarily think would be empowering to a blind person become really empowering to stevie and that how he continued that when he kind of made that realization he continued that throughout all of his work and then they kind of close on um <clears throat> their green closes on the idea of the technology being really empowering to this day. Um, and yeah, I was just wondering if you all picked up on that or there's kind of technological things that you know about today that, that you think are kind of empowering in similar ways.
2: Um, um, I, I oh, wish oh, I ran, did.
0: No, know. Ryan, go no
1: first. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh mind short Cause I wish I did know like this piece just kind of, kind of like you said at the start, Mickey, this piece could have been really, really nerdy and kind of like, they're very very technical weeds of these machinery but after reading the piece and i'm glad the piece is the way it is i wouldn't want that in this piece but i would love to go to another piece and just learn about all that technical stuff and kind of like draw this um this line of how it's all developed to the modern day and yeah absolutely uh, that's definitely something i would be interested in after this but yeah go ahead tyler
2: oh uh, no i was like dude you're good um for me, it I did see the connection because like it's there's current music that are being made today. You can even say it. once again how I was gonna say it connected to Kanye West, um in some way. Um, one with the 808s and the heartbreaks album. Without Stevie's innovation and experimentation with sound and using technology, we wouldn't have 808s. And in some ways, we wouldn't have this stem player thing that he's using now. Which whatever how regardless you feel about it, it is once again a use of technology in a different type of way where it's being trying to use to be innovated. But like we go back to, once again, back to the 70s and 80s, what is that, 50, 60 years ago now? Because <laughs> we're now in mm. the 2020s, which is weird to think about. Um, how that is still, we still see, But basically my point is, we're still seeing innovators innovate. And that is awesome mm. to see. Um, final note that I want to say, or ask more so than ask, is what is y'all's favorite Stevie Wonder album? I will s- simply say it's really a toss-up between Visions and Songs in the Keys of Life for me. Yeah. Um, so it's between those two. If you have one, please say so. Yeah,
0: I mean, I funny enough, so I, over the pandemic, for a few different artists, I did a run through their entire catalogs that I had never done before, and one of them was Stevie. And I to me, it's just Songs in the Key is just the one. It really is. Front to back. And that's like the one for me that really, really, really hits no matter what. And I know that that's a basic ass answer, but it's just a fact to me. Fair, fair, (laughs) Uh, fair.
1: I have been meaning to do exactly what Mickey just described, because most of my exposure to like Stevie Wonder has been like tracks here and there through like playlists and all that, which is strange because I'm not a playlist person. So I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for you right now, but hopefully soon I will, because I'm not very... I'm, I'm a lazy
0: music
2: listener, as you guys know. <laughs> it's all good. It's yeah. all good.
0: Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's an amazing to listen to Stevie Wonder's catalog um, from beginning to end and really hear that progression. And that was kind of a funny thing with reading this piece too. As just a closing thought before we move into Tyler's piece to close, is like that that kind of one of the last things I described of like the Motown Barry Gordy Stevie Wonder into the Stevie Wonder self empowered artist is like a very clear. Right change when you listen to his catalog and this gave me new context on something that i had already heard when i went through it um so yeah so we we went back but let's let's bring it back to some present day music um but first let me just reread the name of the piece we just talked about stevie wonder and his dream machines by jason green via pitchfork and now we will move to tyler and why don't you introduce your piece man
2: So, I brought Earthgang's Ghetto Gods Look for Divinity in Atlanta's Dichotomies by Christina Lee, which, if, any, if, like if anyone's been listening to us for a while, we love some Christina Lee here. <laughs> we love some Christina Lee. If uh, I, I wonder how many times we've actually covered her at this point um, on the podcast. Um, but basically, yeah, she brought an interview um, by Earthgang, because they just dropped their new album, Ghetto Gods, um, which is an album that I've also been listening to, but it's been more so in the back of my mind right now. Um, but I will say re-listening, <laughs> um, pro, um, but re-listening to the album again after reading this article gave a lot of more context and why I felt why this album was probably the most, I don't know, normal for them. And I don't mean normal in a bad way. <laughs> it's more so they it felt very grounded, and it went to a quote of Olú basically saying uh, the fact is they were they're basically like, we're trying to be more we're trying to be less creative, and more honest. Which you would be like oh with art you don't have to compromise for two. but no in actuality it's for them and that what they had this vision for this album um, they that's what they felt like they needed to do. Right. Um And to really go back into like the structure of the piece, Christina really might have some of my favorite intros to like interviews. Right. Like the way she sets everything up to basically go into like the back and forth of when they actually get into the, the quote unquote interview part. is just she does it so good, man. <laughs> she does it so good. It's um it's she always has a mixture of contextualizing modern contextualizing, modernizing, and understanding. Um, if that makes any sense. And I and when I say that I mean is whatever artist she's basically highlighting or subject that she's highlighting, she makes sure you're always a part of the conversation with her word choice and how she intros said piece. Um It's all it's all it's, all, it's like they start she starts from like the beginnings or the modern beginnings of what people would think they have of the group. Like in the second paragraph, she does a simple like intro of like where they are or excuse me, how they came to be with that last, with their last project and felt so out there to them bringing to the subject of what she wanted of the piece to how it's so grounded and how it's so Atlanta. Even in it's in a wacky city, we have the most realistic thing that's happening right now, the pandemic and how they created through that. Um, and i and once again i thought she got so many gems out of them by moving the interview in a way where it where you think it starts off with the most rec, like just like oh like little openers to be like oh here's how, so how i can get them talking and then quick once like by the third question has already incorporated by what um corporate what they're saying into how she can get more stuff out of them um ryan what did you think of this piece man
1: uh yeah i think I mean, it goes without saying that Christina Lee, Lee made a good piece, guys. <laughs> ever. <laughs> no brainer. Ever expected, yeah. <laughs> no, and I think what really struck me about this piece, because um, we've brought Christina Lee's uh, more, less interview-focused piece before, but I think the first one that I brought was actually an interview, a transcript interview of Open Mike Eagle, and my mind immediately started comparing this one to that one, and it got me thinking about How, as a journalist, you adjust your question-asking style depending on who you're interviewing, right? (laughs) Mickey's nodding his head
0: so hard right now. I mean, Um, it it should change. It should change. It should change, right? And I think... Not just... Well, I'm nodding my head because it's not not just who you're interviewing, but where they're at, too.
1: Right. Exactly right. So I remember the um, Overmark Eagle interview, and we covered it on an episode quite a while ago now. I think it was like before we interviewed her. And we interviewed her, by the way. Listen to that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, Great interview that was. Um, but I remember the questions being a lot longer in that interview. But the ones <clears throat> in this piece are very minimal. And I think it's about knowing your subject, right? Because for this interview, she knew she barely had to prompt them to get a really in-depth answer from them. You know, that sometimes in an interview you can over-question. And I think, obviously, editing is a huge part of that because maybe, you don't know, maybe Christina's, like, rambling <laughs> her, her questions and, like, cut them down to concise stuff. But um, I doubt it. I, I really doubt it because her questions are short and they're very concise, but she knows exactly the amount to give them uh, for them to take and kind of spin their own yarn with it. As with open mic, she wanted to ask about very, very specific things because he does a lot of very different things and she wanted to be very specific. So there there was a need for elaboration in that. And on this side, it was more uh, ephemeral in that sense. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at the piece and to look at her interview technique. Um, And yeah, I definitely learned something from that because, uh, yeah, because... Next time I go into an interview, I'll be a lot more wary of that. I'll be a lot more wary of over-asking questions. And especially when I listen back to my interviews, I absolutely hate it. Because I'm like, you could have said that in like three words, man. Like, you, <laughs> <laughs> What were you talking about? <laughs> but yeah, Mickey, I know you have something to say.
0: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> the the short interview question always makes me think of, uh, and I talked about this on a podcast way back of like the late king. <coughs> He's like, the, he is really the king of the like, three-word question and then just letting the person talk uh but we've also talked about this a lot on the podcast which is um the writer mirroring the vibe of either the artist or the music that they're covering um and while ryan was comparing this interview a lot to to the open mic eagle piece which he just re-reminded me of i was comparing it to the To the last piece that was also for npr that i brought from christina where she kind of dissected baby mother and uh her i think 2020 album and then also an experience with hallucinogenics and it was the writing style very much mimicked the the kind of experience of that and taking in the album and this with uh where you know it gets explored throughout the piece where earth gang is very much like not at (laughs) this is the only word i kept thinking while you were talking about like how i can say this word better but it's really it's at the they're really like at the surface but it's more like being in the present not like it's a surface level thing but they're like very like instinctual off of like the emotion of what's happening here and the album itself is like very straightforward and to the point and that's exactly how her questioning was and exactly how her analysis was which was like mirroring exactly what the album feels like and where earth gang was at Um, And so it feels very organic every time because she's kind of immersing herself within the space of the subjects that she's, that she's talking to. And I think that was kind of um, one of the most standout parts of this whole thing for sure.
2: She keeps it ground level essentially because like, since it's earthgang is like what they're saying with this album what they're saying through this interview like oh we're on the ground with the people, we're understanding with the people. She made sure she was on the exa- as we're all saying she was made sure it was at the exact same level with them. She made sure that when she asked a question they had this space when I say this a lot as well they have the artists have this space and openness to be fully themselves like if they need to ramble they can ramble. Like the fact that some answers are like it's them going back and forth, and some it's like them like just saying their paragraph of a piece, right? It's giving them that space and that avenue to do that. Um, and it's having, it's letting the artist, it's getting them to a comfortable place and having that uh, rapport with them as well. Um, that's kind of hard to do because I, whenever I want, whenever I go into an interview, I always try to make it conversational um because that's kind of like what works for me because that's how i play off people but the fact that you're just able to give them space to like you don't always have to be talking as was right, the the master of the three the, the three word uh question it's it's for me it's personally hard to do so like when i see someone else do it and they do it so well it's it's great to see I
0: think another big thing that she accomplished with this piece is kind of uh, getting an answer on the elephant in the room question about this album, which we've kind of discussed in our group chats with Brandon, who is like a a friend of ours and, you know, continual co-host of the podcast who is like an earth gang day one fan and the kind of difference in sound from the beginning of their music to now. And Christina seems very hyper aware of that kind of, the funny enough, she's talking about dichotomies. The dichotomy of that that music to this music and the pretty early on in the interview, I think it's like the second question gets a pretty straight, straight up answer about their executive producer, KP, which she kind of clocks in as like the part of the reasoning why the album sounds the way it does. And he is a DJ first, which they wanted specifically because they wanted to make music over the course of the album that could be played in DJ sets, which like is very different. And then I think Olu says in kind of that same question answer section that like they were for the longest time, just making music in the crib and then presenting it to people on the outside. And this one is like made with the intention of being outside music kind of coming out of the pandemic, even though it's like rooted in the emotion of that. And uh, that, that just was like a big light bulb for me of like, Oh, that's why it sounds this way.
1: Yeah, a brilliant yeah. pickup by Christina about the executive producer. Like, that's a brilliant link to make and, like, shows really great research into how, like, into the album. And, like, yeah, yeah, really appreciate that. Because I'm someone as well who's, like, I really liked Earth Gang's, uh pre-Dreamville stuff. But post-Dreamville, I've been kind of iffy on them. So, yeah, uh, it was good to get, like, kind of, like, catch up with them and understand what like, that mentality is like. And, yeah, I get it a bit more
2: now. It's really funny to me because I remember I was, I was with um our friend as well and one of the guys who started the site Carter um for a listening party when we did uh, Mirrorland um we listened to that album and and he said one thing about the album that like threw him off about Mirrorland was like he's like I don't think I feel like any of these songs to like really be in a playlist or like none of them or not, none of it real has like this real, it's like it feels Atlanta but there's no real consistency Well, this album is the complete antithesis to that. It's, it's literally like going back looking at your previous work and then changing completely and f- her honing in on the connection of why that is and while i was like oh i could i was like i really i made a conscious like thing where i was like when i was in time i was like oh i could put these on playlists that i have right now they'll fit right in unlike the last album where they seem like their own unique thing so yeah kudos to that man
0: Definitely want to salute uh, producer Groove, who produced on the track with J. Cole and J.I.D. I did a profile of him on OK Player recently, which you can check out, but that's a, a definitely a big look for him. He's a Carolina-based producer. Um, and he, he also produced Sacrifices on the, the Dreamville 3 project, Revenge of the Dreamers 3. Um, so, yeah, sh- shout-out Groove.
2: Yeah, all fire songs, bro. Fire songs, too.
0: Definitely. Um, in case you, either of you guys have any other closing, closing thoughts, uh, I I think we can, we can wrap this one up. Um, I think it's been a pretty fluid discussion today on these three really amazing pieces. Um, and I'll go, go back through them on the one we just covered, which is, uh, Earth Gangs, Ghetto Gods, Looks for Divinity, in Atlanta's Dichotomies by Christina Lee for NPR. Before that, we talked about Stevie Wonder and his Dream Machines by Jason Green for Pitchfork. And we opened with Epic Games, Bandcamp, and Fandom for the Me Generation by Mark Mulligan <clears throat> for Media. I uh, want to thank all of our listeners for continually tuning in to the podcast and uh, keeping real music journalism alive um as we always say at the end of each episode if you are an independent journalist working specifically for a smaller publication that we may or may not be aware of we'd love to read your work and potentially feature it on the podcast so feel free to hit us up uh either on twitter instagram wherever we are on social media we got our emails and our bios and uh send us your work because we'd love to read it and potentially feature it um but other than that uh, uh yeah also-
1: if you are an editor who can pay livable
0: wages
1: for journalism and good journalism, ha. hit us up too. That would be great.
0: <laughs> yeah, we uh, are always looking up, t- looking to pick up new bylines and write more pieces as well. Because we're also out here. Yeah. Please. Um, Please. <laughs> <laughs> definitely shameless self plug. We we got some nice pens too. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, other than that, yeah, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for listening, as always, and we'll we'll catch you next time. Yeah, see you later.
1: This episode of The Search of Source featured Ryan Gore, Mickey back and Tyler Jones of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was led by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth Element Podcast Network. Music for this show is up by Basti. Thanks to your records for the years. This has been the Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast a Production. Thanks to Basti, records, the Central Source, Fifth Element, and content coming in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. You have see you next time as we continue our search for Source.